This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 94th episode of the Quarter Bin Podcast, we're looking at Madame Xanadu, number one, from the Vertigo line of DC Comics, cover dated August 2008. But first, a little feedback. New listener Sean Merrick said he was rather enjoying the Quarter Bin Show. He said the weird episodes were fun, as he had most of those issues. We then went back and forth about the weird's later appearances in the mid-2000s. And on last episode, Animal Man, his comments were short and sweet. Oh man, I used to have these. Good to have you on board, Sean. Glad that the nostalgia aspect of the podcast is working for you. Sean, by the way, co-hosts the Worst Collection Ever podcast. Also, on the issues of The Weird, I Was Joe Crawford updated me on his reading of the recent Mystery in Space series, in which The Weird appeared. I guess those led him to tracking down the miniseries. I'm going to re-listen to your episodes about The Weird, he tweeted at me. I enjoyed Mystery in Space, but so far, The Weird is excellent. That's great, Iowa's Joe. I'm not recommending the weird to everyone, but it's one of those books that if you're in the right mood, I think it can really work for people. Dr. Ange had a few things to say about last episode. The doc is, of course, the proprietor of the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. He wrote in to thank me for covering these Animal Man issues on the show. I bought the Grant Morrison Animal Man and absolutely loved it for its trippy thoughts on fiction versus reality. I liked the Milligan run after for the bizarre quantum physics look at the multiverse, but the Steve Veach run which followed was incomprehensible, and worse than that, it was long. So when Jamie Delano came on the book, I cheered. I loved his Hellblazer issues and knew he would write an intelligent Buddy Baker. The idea of weaving earth magic and environmental issues into the book seemed perfect for his writing style. Once again, I was getting a book I could enjoy, and it didn't hurt that the art soared, including those great issues by Steve Pugh. The rest of the run, for the most part, is worth reading if you see more books in the quarter bin. Thanks for that, Doctor. Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun wrote in on last issue. I admire Morrison's take on Animal Man, but it's Jamie Delano's run I come back to again and again. And I actually like that distinction that Mark made between admiring and desiring to revisit, which Mark did say that word choice was intentional. I've reread Morrison too, he says, but Delano's version of the concepts just ring more pure. The great Kansan, Gregor Rujo, agreed about Delano's work on the title. It really put the animal in Animal Man. The last act of his story, however, was 
interesting. Back to Iowa's Joe Crawford, he commented on the lobster-based cover of issue 61, which I put on the post for the episode. If the episode is half as good as the cover, we're golden. Problem was, that put a lot of pressure on me, because I was only shooting to make the episode a third as good as the cover. After listening to the episode, I was Joe, and I discussed head colds, sinus infections, and allergies for a while. I'll spare the details. And thanks to the Sutherlands for asking how I'm feeling. Much, much better. Thanks for that, everybody. I really appreciate the comments. It is possible that those two issues are the only Animal Man issues I've ever seen in the cheap bins. But after that episode and the feedback from folks like Dr. Ange, if I see another one or two, I would be sorely tempted to pick them up. Glenn Anderson listened on the way to work that day. Excellent. And I was wondering how this would read. Didn't know that they were parts one and three of an arc, but I liked the fact that it seemed quite self-contained. Hope your sinus issues are clearing up. Thanks, Glenn, they did. The posts for that podcast episode were shared or retweeted by Ange, I was Joe, Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower, The Long Box Crusade, Clinton Robison from Coffee and Comics, that's a blog and a podcast, and Noel Thingval from Greystoked. Thanks for all the support and feedback, everybody. And, of course, a big thanks to everyone for listening. But enough of that mumbo-jumbo. It's time to get magical. Madam Xanadu, number one at a cover price of two ninety nine, meaning I acquired this book at just a little bit over a 91% price reduction. Before we start the synopsis, I want to say that I understand that the word gypsy is offensive to some, and that there are other more modern terms that are, are preferred among some. Given the time period that the story takes place and some of the trappings of the character and the story, I do think that's the best word to describe what's being portrayed in the story. So I am going to use the word a few times in this episode, and I do apologize in advance for any offense. The cover of the issue by Amy Reader Hadley shows a young woman in traditional gypsy garb, including jewelry and rings and necklaces, and she's tossing a tarot card in the air, or perhaps she's levitating a tarot card. The story, Chapter the First, by the Runes, was written by Matt Wagner, with art by the cover artist, Amy Reader Hadley. We start in the dark woods, deep in the night. The girl from the cover, Nimue, mistress of the sacred grove, is under the big full moon. Seeing is sacred. Touch my eyes, moon mother, so that I might see. But the moon hides her secrets, so she must turn elsewhere for the visions she seeks. Father of many trees and saplings yet to be, bestow on me the wisdom of your aged flesh. Grant me this boon, O generous elm. But that doesn't help either. Returning to her home, she considers. There's a pattern in everything. Seeing unlocks the patterns, and the tools of seeing are many. She creates a set of tiles from elm wood, 
ink consisting of snake blood and moth wings. The elder runes, old as the trees and the wind and the earth. Once summoned, their revelations cannot be unmade. For she is compelled to see. Even when the warnings are bleak and the outcome dire. For trouble does indeed lie ahead. But at that moment, visitors approach. The visitors are the Elmwood Council Druids all, seeking the wisdom and guidance of the Sylvan Nymph. She respects those who safeguard the woods and agrees to serve them. But the Druids are not seeking her foresight. They're seeking her influence. The problem is that the king has lost his vigor and the realm teeters on disaster. Brutish forces now hold sway, and I'm afraid we count your sister among those. They beg Nimue to use whatever sway she holds over the king's wizard to help them avoid the coming calamities. She agrees to try, but realizes that she cannot guarantee the man's actions. As the druids leave, she senses a presence, a presence both ambiguous and strange. It is, in fact, a stranger in a purple cloak wearing a gold medallion. He knows her, but she does not recognize him. You don't? No, of course you don't. That was a different time and a different place. Well, that comment totally freaks her out, and she tells him to keep his distance or risk suffering her wrath. His voice holds an ageless timbre, older than her people, old as the earth itself. The stranger ignores her warning, approaches her, and tells her that what has been will soon pass, and what shall be will then arise in its place. Fading away, the stranger says that although he has no name on this earth, she must heed his words. You know them to be true. Despite the stranger's warnings, Nimue seeks the wisdom of the mistress of the Misty Lake. This is her oldest sister, and she needs her blessings in order to cross over the water to visit their middle sister. It has been many years since I last visited her dank and lonely isle. Ignoring the goblins that populate the shore, she heads straight for the castle, which is taller than last she saw it. Cold, black stone. She entreats her sister Morgana to lower her weird defenses, and she is allowed in. Morgana makes fun of her sister's cares for the forest and the animal world, before revealing that she knows of the druid's visits to Nimue. But Morgana has no interest in saving the realm. My darling boy is the rightful heir to this dismal realm, even if his pathetic father refuses to acknowledge him. Very soon now, and with my help, he will rise up and demand his heritage, by force of arms if necessary. Before Nipiwe can express her shock, Morgana tells her not to get so high and mighty. You're not above sleeping wherever it suits your needs. After a few more threats and insults, Nimue leaves her sister and heads to the king's castle, although she does acknowledge that it seems a bit shabby around the seams. But she knows, I'm always welcome in the chambers I seek this night, and by he who occupies them. 
The wizard and I have lain together exactly seven times. Seven times grants me an edge of enchantment. The wizard of whom she speaks is indeed more powerful than any mortal magister. Some claim him half infernal. This is, of course, Merlin, who comments on how youthful her skin is, despite her being one of the elder folk. As his lips glide over her flesh, Nimue wonders if even his influence can stave off the inevitable. Later, as she crosses through the woods again, a certain stranger appears again to her. He asks her why this time it concerns her so. You have seen other empires both rise and fall. You will see many more yet to come. But he knows the truth, the truth she does not want to hear. It is your lover, the wizard. He is the cause of all these woes. He thinks himself the architect of civilizations. But in fact, he is a spawn of the underworld. He consorts with demons. She denies this vile charge, and then takes the stranger on a walk through the calm and peaceful village, saying that only under this sovereign's reign has such calm, such peace, such prosperity been the norm. But even as she explains to the stranger that peace has held sway for many years now, they feel the earth rumble beneath their feet. War comes, the stranger tells her, and we see an armor-clad warrior riding into the village. Onward to victory! Death to the king and his kind! Nimue screams, and the stranger tells her that it's too late. And on the final page, we see a castle under attack from dragons breathing fire. You cannot change what has already been written, the stranger tells her. Look there, the final battle of Camelot has begun. Hey there, my name's Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey, Liz. I'm just recording the the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm... One of the hosts? I have more podcast experience? What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. Alright, well hang on, I'll delete this, we'll try again. That's not delete, that's the button for publish. And we're back. And I can tell you where I first met Madame Xanadu. In 1981, she had a self-titled one-shot with a $1 cover price. Now, I don't remember when I got that, but it was probably at a one-day show within a year or two of it being released. And I hope for my personal reputation and the sanctity of this podcast that I paid less than a buck for it. I don't remember anything about the stories in that issue, but I do remember having that issue in my collection for quite some time. 
I don't think I brought it with me to Ohio, and I don't remember it going in the Great Comics Purge of 99, so I bet I traded it to a buddy sometime in the mid-90s. And that 1981 issue was still pretty early in her career as a character, having debuted just three years before in Doorway to Nightmare number 1. She was designed by cover artist Mike Kaluta per the editorial request of Joe Orlando. She was based on Kaluta's unnamed host from the mystery book Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion. That character was later known as Charity, appearing in the pages of Sandman. That first issue of Doorway to Nightmare, her comic debut, was brought to us by David Michelini and Val Merrick. The concept of Doorway to Nightmare was that each issue would create unique uh, writer-artist pairings, preferably teams that had never worked together before. And she appeared in all five issues of that title, written and drawn by five different teams of creators. She also appeared in the infamous cancelled comic Cavalcade as the cover of what would have been issue six was in that issue. She was in another five issues of The Unexpected before the self-titled issue in 1981 that I mentioned, that, that dollar comic. And then she spent a few decades making really just occasional appearances here and there, mostly in the Spectre, until this series in 2008 when Matt Wagner took it upon himself to concoct a backstory, a history, for Madame Xanadu. The story fell under the auspices of the Vertigo imprint because of its mature nature. The series ran just 29 issues, becoming a casualty of a DC mandate that, I guess, recalled characters that had originated in the main DCU, pulled them out of the Vertigo line back into DC. And this title was among those that got the axe. Now, there are a lot of bad things that the New 52 brought, especially to every one of my friends who likes Superman. But one of the things that the New 52 did very well was the dark line of books. And Madame Xanadu was all over those, mostly Demon Knights and Justice League Dark. But she also popped up in a few issues of I, Vampire and Phantom Stranger, her old buddy from this issue. So now I consider myself a fan of Madame Xanadu. But that's really only been from her appearances over the last five years or so. But all of that is to say that this issue, issue one, is the only issue of the Vertigo run of Madame Xanadu that I've ever read. And I think that this one laid some nice groundwork for the character. There was not a lot that was necessarily unique about this origin. We've seen similar stories before, but that does not mean it wasn't well executed. Matt Wagner is a legitimate top comic book talent. The man has earned 10 Eisner nominations. He knows what he's doing. A solo story featuring a magic character can be hard, especially a fortune-telling character. Like I said, I've run across Xanadu more often in team books, where her particular skills are, I don't know, one cog in the heroic machine. In fantasy literature and in, in D&D, 
This type of character is, again, usually part of the party, not the sole hero who saves the day. So I am curious as to where this comic went over the next few years, how Wagner handled that very specific challenge of writing this type of character. And of course, this is not the first time on the podcast we've run across a character with a bit of the Romany, the the gypsy magic in them. The one, the only Dr. Doom is that perfect mix of the magical and the technological. And of course, in Doom 2099, we have the character of Fortune, the official tarot card reader of the Latverian court. And corporate leaders even seek out her unique gifts and talents. But again, she's not the lead character. She's a supporting character. She possesses a particular skill that at certain times aids the group or or aids the leader or aids her client. But the story that we have here is very cool. The world that's being built here is very cool. And in terms of that, that world building, we also have to point out that that's coming from the artist, Amy Reader Hadley. The wild nature of the magic is attention-getting, especially in the first part of the issue, the, the dark forest scenes. And that mysterious nature of wild spaces, of the wild forest, is really captured well, presented well, by Hadley. One artistic notion that I want to draw attention to is the small, I don't know, I guess they're sprites, maybe, that fly around both Nimue and her sister Morgana. But there's a big difference between them. The sprites are these these fairies that surround our heroine. The ones that aid her are cute, angelic, helpful. They say things like, Nimue make, Nimue find, Nimue spell, Nimue cast, Nimue hear. While the entities flying around her sister's head are a bit more aggressive and ugly. And aggressively ugly, as a matter of fact. They see Nimue and proclaim that she's a stranger for chasing, for scaring, for biting. And then when she enters her sister's presence, they proclaim Morgana as kind, sweet, fair, pretty, queen. And Nimue, quite inaccurately, as sister ugly and sister fat. Those were humorous bits, to be sure, but they were also indicative of the characters of those two women as well. And Nimue, Madame Xanadu, looks great. She has big, expressive, innocent eyes. And though she's certainly portrayed as a powerful and dangerous person of magic, she's also shown as a bit small, fair, delicate. It wasn't until I was more than halfway through the issue that it even occurred to me that this was taking place in Camelot, because it's an eerier version of that world that I'm used to seeing. But we get Morgana and the Lady of the Lake, and we get a very classic-looking Merlin. And I was surprised by Merlin's relationship with Nimue, with her, at least to this point, pretty much using his affections for her gain. And again, that's something I'm curious about. In the long run, who is exactly using whom more? Is there a power dynamic in that relationship that changes as the issues go by? Is the nature of that relationship 
revealed later to be something different than it appears here in issue one. And the Phantom Stranger shows up. Come on. That's always a bonus. In doing these reviews, where there's a backup or a text piece or some other sort of special feature, if you will, I usually include a discussion of that because that is part of the entire package that my bright, shiny quarter purchased. And I want to take a holistic view of the comic. That being said, I usually don't talk about the free previews of other books if they're included. But I'm making an exception here. This issue contained a six-page preview of Air, number one, also a Vertigo book, cover dated a few months later, October 2008. The only reason I even read that preview was because the story was written by G. Willow Wilson, whose work on the Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, is very strong. This, Air, was her first regular full-length work, and I was intrigued by it. And what we get in the preview is a flight attendant who is subject to panic attacks and who agrees to get involved with what may turn out to be a situation that's just a little bit shady. The issue also includes a brief interview or conversation with the creators of Air, G. Willow Wilson, and M.K. Perker. And Wilson ends her bit with a pretty intriguing pitch for the series. Air is a story about politics that lets us escape from politics. It's a fantasy drama about this stigmatized yet magical form of travel. And it asks questions that we're all asking ourselves in this political climate. Again, that climate was in the waning months of the George W. Bush administration, seven years after 9-11. Who will die for whom? Who will emerge as the hero? How much are we willing to sacrifice for justice? Air lasted a total of 24 issues, none of which I don't think I've ever seen in the wild. And the series was nominated for an Eisner in 2009 for Best New Series. The verdict on Madame Xanadu Number 1. It's tricky because it's a story we've seen before. Young, innocent woman who knows more than is good for her, who can see into the future, and whose power attracts the attention of powerful men. A woman on whose shoulder the fate of the world rests. But it's a story that's told very well in this issue. And I am a huge sucker for Camelot stories. And that is hook enough for me to want to know what happens next. I do not believe I've ever seen another issue of this in the cheap ends. It was a pretty low-selling book, and I'm sure by the time the first few issues came out, stores were not ordering this in, in huge quantities. They were probably ordering just the number that they knew they could sell. So I don't think there are a lot of unclaimed issues floating around in the wild. But I am glad I found this one. Like I said, the story itself wasn't earth-shaking, but I dig the character, and I really dig the setting. 
a definite quarter bin deal. And that wraps up my coverage of Madam Xanadu number one, bringing episode 94 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 95, we're staying here in the Vertigo Vortex by looking at Sandman, issues 47, 48, and 49. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode The Vertigo Vortex, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor. 